The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 25, 12 through 22. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to him his covenant. His eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Redeemer, you may be seated. As you can see, the clouds are looming. There's the ever-present potential of rain. And if we get cut short, I'm going to give you the end of the sermon. It's all about Jesus. Okay? Look to him. All right? So hopefully I'll be able to take the next 20 or 30 minutes to help get you there as we look at Psalm 25 together. Few things are more helpful than a good coach. If you've ever tried to learn a new sport, a new instrument, a new skill, you've probably seen this to be true. There's certain things you try to learn, and while you could do all the reading and conceptual, theoretical study in the world, it isn't until you have someone coach you through it step-by-step, in a hands-on way that you really make any progress. Now, I didn't make it too far in my football career, but I was a Little League pro bowler at running back, if I say so myself. still remember how Coach Castrell of the Sterling Dolphins helped me to conquer a fumbling habit by teaching me how to switch the ball to the other side and get away from the defender when I was running. A few years later, after football was said and done, I decided to take up playing the guitar And I struggled a lot uh, with learning the dreaded bar chord. I even quit playing guitar for a time because I just couldn't get past this bar chord, despite trying to follow all the directions in my guitar books and everything I was watching. But my dad and a friend named Pierre from school, who were both great guitar players, were patient and they showed me how to get there. And eventually I got better. Today in my day job, I handle a lot of training and uh, development for new hires, Now, we have manuals for them, we have detailed notes on every single thing that we do, but at the end of the day, what I constantly find is that every new team member struggles until someone can come alongside them and show them what to do. You see, things don't usually click until we get some real-life experience. We can absorb information all day long, but we need examples in action that we can learn from. We need a coach. This is the beauty of the book of Psalms. In the Psalms, we not only learn amazing theological truths about the God that we worship, but we get to see real-life examples of how to communicate with him. We get some coaching on what our prayer lives can and should look like. Even better, the Psalms are brutally honest about the broken and messed up world that you and I find ourselves in. So here in Psalm 25, which we read today, we see David, the great king of ancient Israel, walking through afflictions and trials his enemies spewing hatred toward him. He's wrestling with the weight of his own sin, and like a crazy person, he's trusting God through all of it. Now, if you're anything like me, that when you walk through those kinds of situations, 
afflicted, hated by enemies, feeling guilty for your sin, trusting God is probably the last thing that you're inclined to do. Maybe you're tempted to ask this question. How can I trust God when he's allowed all this in the first place? And of course, a well-meaning person comes along and says, trust God, pray about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, see, it's easier said than done often. Now, that, that person, they're not wrong, of course, but we don't need platitudes. We don't need theory. We need example. We need the real-life coaching that King David provides us in this psalm as we watch him pray through his distress. And in it, we learn how to trust God in distress and why we can trust him through our distress. Psalm 25 is going to show us today that in your distress, you can trust God to defend you, to guide you, to forgive you, and to save you. Read with me verses 1 through 3, Psalm 25, verses 1 through 3. Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. So when you're in distress, trust God to defend you. We see here David's appeal of trust, and he takes it straight to God without reservation. Now, it stands out to me here that David addresses God in two separate ways. First, he calls him Lord, then he calls him my God. Well, when you see the word Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, it's actually the divine covenant name for the God of Israel. It's what we would often transliterate into English as Yahweh. Now, this title for God is a way to address God in his transcendent splendor, as the God of the universe and the covenant-keeping Redeemer of Israel. But David also says, my God. There's a personal relationship, an intimate address. David is the Lord's, and the Lord is David's. Now, I believe that David addresses God in this twofold manner for a reason. He addresses him first as the Lord because there's no one higher, and there's no one more powerful that he can appeal to but he addresses him as his God because there's no one more near and no one more present that he ought to appeal to. Who better to defend David than the Lord his God? To who else could he turn? But then we see the content of David's appeal as he asks the Lord in verse 3 not to let his enemies gloat over and disgrace him. This theme crops up a number of times in Psalm 25. Verses 16 and 17, David says that he is alone and afflicted with the distresses of his heart increasing. Verse 19 and 20, he appeals further. Consider my enemies, they are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Now, there's no way to really be sure what situation David was walking through when he wrote Psalm 25. It's possible that this was earlier on in his life and he found himself surrounded by enemies when he was being pursued by Saul before David himself became king. Or it could have been years later when his son Absalom rebelled against him and overthrew his kingdom by force. But we know that whatever the situation, David felt surrounded and overwhelmed by his enemies. But he knew that he could take refuge in the Lord. He knew that his God would defend him. As I read this, I'm also astounded that David asks for God's defense in a way very different from how I usually would. Notice that he simply asks for God to protect him from disgrace and shame. He doesn't say, or he says, do not let them triumph over me, but he doesn't say, let me triumph over them. 
He does state that the treacherous will one day be put to shame, but we see this fine line that David walks in that he, he trusts all justice to God without trying to be the one who delivers justice. I'm not so holy. You might not be either. Usually when I feel I have an enemy standing against me, I probably sound less like David and more like Nacho Libre. I want to win! But instead of wanting to triumph over those who oppose us, your concern and mine, it should simply be that God would protect us. We can leave the rest to him and trust that he will judge wickedness in due time. So Redeemer, when you face afflictions, when you face enemies surrounding you, how do you respond? How does that affect your prayers? Do you assume that God is not powerful enough to help you? You need to remember that he is the Lord, Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth. Do you assume that he's too far off or too distant to care? You need to remember that he is your God. Do you believe that he would leave you in disgrace? You need to remember that he is your refuge and that no one who waits for him will be disgraced. Do you seek to be protected from or selfishly exalted above your enemies? Remember that justice and vengeance are his, not yours, not mine, and that he will deal with those who act treacherously. He is the Lord your God. He will defend you. He will take care of you. Prayerfully trust that he will do that. But our distresses don't only leave us needing protection and defense from the Lord. The challenging circumstances that we walk through, we also need wisdom in how to move forward. We have decisions to make that sometimes feel torturous because we just don't know what to do. And what we'll see next is that in your distress, you can trust God to guide you. Read along with me, starting in verses 4 and 5. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Skipping ahead to verses 8 through 10. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. What's beautiful here is not only that David is so eager for guidance, but that God is so willing and eager to guide. Because God is who he is, because he is good and upright, it says, therefore he shows sinners like you and me his ways. But as we see in verse 9, we must have the humility to come to him and to seek guidance, because he leads the humble and only the humble. I think when we're put under great distress and we need to make decisions, we go one of two directions. We either go to self-reliance or self-defeat. You know how you're wired in your flesh. You probably know which way you lean when you're facing these kinds of circumstances. Some of us here probably pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we, we have that motto that if it's going to be, it's up to me and we just plow through and make whatever decision that we see fit. On the other side, some of us, we get paralyzed. We, we dig in our heels and refuse to move or make a decision at all, in total self-defeat, because we resign ourselves to some sort of maybe spiritualized fatalism that whatever happens is just going to happen. But a humble request for guidance, like we see from David in this psalm, carries both the urgency of action and the patience to wait on the Lord. As he says in verse 5, you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. But again, David confidently trusts that in his waiting, God will reveal to him his ways. 
If we go further in the psalm, verses 12 to 14, we see this theme come up again. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way that he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. So what do we put together from these verses? We see that God is willing and he is eager to guide those who fear him and who humbly seek him. This truth is all over the place in scripture. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. God is willing to grant wisdom. You and I were in desperate need of it, but are we patient enough to wait? Are we humble enough to ask? The challenging part about seeking God's guidance in distressing situations is that the choices we have to make aren't always made explicit in Scripture. Some things are clear, of course. If it's moral, it's pretty clear in the Bible. You know, that coworker that bothered you at work, should you punch them? No, of course not. Love your enemies. If you have a bill that you're working hard to pay, should you steal in order to make ends meet? No, thou shalt not steal. Moral decisions in Scripture are often really clear. There's not a lot of guesswork. We either obey God or we don't. But some things aren't always that clear. Should you stay at your current job or should you take a new one? Should you patiently endure a dysfunctional relationship in your extended family or should you create more extensive boundaries? Should you stay rooted in an amazing church where God has already planted you or should you move with a new church plant? (laughs) Should you buy a home that will be a little less than what your family needs but will be easier financially or should you choose a home that is at the top of your budget and stretches you a bit more but maybe it allows you the opportunity for a ministry of hospitality in your neighborhood? These questions aren't always that clear. We need wisdom to navigate those, and that causes distress. We need to know God's ways. I struggle with these types of decisions a lot. Uh, To a fault, I always try to play out all the future scenarios of my non-moral but still important life decisions. I was actually talking to Don Sandberg, one of our elders, the other day about a few things that I was wrestling with, and I literally told him every single scenario of what could happen if I choose option one highlighting mostly the bad. And I told him all the possibilities of what could happen if I choose option two, focusing probably a little bit more on the bad and how it could possibly impact me years down the road. And if you know Don, you can probably just imagine how he chuckled and shook his head and said, Ian, I'm going to need you to stop overthinking this. I just wish that in those situations I could flip open the Bible to a page and it would just say, choose option one. Or I could look up in the clouds and see a sign and it would say, don't choose option two. But That's not the way that God leads us. Despite the ways that we might torture ourselves over what to choose, what we need to come back to is the truth that we see in Psalm 25, that we serve a God who promises to make his ways known to me, even in the murky and uncertain decisions of life. If I choose option one, he'll show me how to walk that path according to his ways. If I choose option two, he'll show me how to walk that path and continue to keep his decrees. So long as I do what is central and I fear the Lord and I humbly seek him, when I have two equally good possibilities, no matter which I choose, in the Lord's eyes, if my heart is set on him, then he will say that I have lived a good life. So when you need guidance and you face these decisions that cause you distress, do these things. 
Remind yourself that you serve a God who is eager to guide you. Commit yourself to obediently walk in every command that is explicit in Scripture. Humbly admit your lack of wisdom and patiently and prayerfully seek God's wisdom and then trust him with the outcome, whichever way you go. So far, we've covered things that exist mostly outside of ourselves, like when we need God to defend and protect us from circumstances or individuals that we come up against, when we need guidance for certain decisions that we encounter, but we cannot overlook the fact that often the greatest challenge and the greatest distress is not outside of us, but it's something that arises from within us, and it's our own sin. And it's here that we should join King David in his confidence that in your distress, you can trust God to forgive you. Let's look at verses six and seven. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion, but in keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. Looking further to verse 11, we find a verse right in the middle of this psalm. Some would probably call it the main point or the hinge of this entire psalm. David says, Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. King David knows well that no matter what's going on around him, his own sin coming from within him is really the most dangerous foe that he faces. This is the same guy who said in verse 3 that those who act treacherously will be disgraced. And here he's acknowledging in verse 11 that his own iniquity is immense. David knows that apart from God's grace, he is just as deserving of the very acts of righteous judgment that will one day be inflicted on God's enemies. This verse is one that leads me to believe that David probably writes this psalm in his later years after his many failures. Even David, the greatest king of ancient Israel, was awfully sinful, yet he knew that he could cast himself on God's grace and confidently expect forgiveness. As we've seen so far in this psalm, the things that God does for us, these promises that he makes, are not just because he does things, but it's because of who he is. God defends his people and guides them in wisdom because of who he is, and in the very same way, he forgives them because of his compassionate character. We see David root all of his requests for forgiveness in the compassion and faithful love of Yahweh. As we see so often in the Old Testament, especially throughout the Psalms, even in our assurance of grace that we read this morning in Psalm 145. What David says here about faithful love and compassion, it should bring to our minds how God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations and forgiving iniquity and sin. See, mercy towards sinners is not just a thing that our Lord does, but it is who he is. After all, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on himself the punishment for our sin on his cross. Now, there's no other faith, there's no other way of life, no other philosophy or religion where we find a God who sends his Son to die for sinners like you and me. You might be here today, and you might not yet be a Christian, but maybe you're thinking, how could he forgive me of what I've done? And I have to say to you, if he could forgive King David, he can certainly forgive you. Let's not forget that this King David is the same guy who used his power as the king of Israel to exploit a woman, then had her husband murdered to cover his tracks. 
allowed one of his daughters to be abused, refused to take action as the king against her abuser, leading to an insurrection by one of his sons. At times he refused to trust God and took things into his own hands, leading to all kinds of issues for the people of Israel. But it's this same David who writes this psalm depending fully on God's forgiveness and on his grace. David knew without question that his sin was immense, but he came without reservation to the God who alone could forgive him. And if he can, so can you. So can I. What about Paul, one of the great apostles of the New Testament? He murdered Christians and he misused God's law for selfish gain. But Paul said of himself that he was the chief of sinners, but continued, it's in the book of 1 Timothy, and he said that Jesus used his messy life to display perfect patience as an example to those who would one day believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's saying, look, if, if I can be saved as the chief of sinners, so can you. Even the most rotten of sinners can come to him with humble repentance and by the sin-absorbing death of Christ on the cross can receive God's perfect and total forgiveness and grace. Redeemer family and any other Christians here today, you and I, we still need this daily. I love David's example here in Psalm 25 of continually pleading for grace all throughout this psalm. Yes, David, he already has forgiveness, and it won't be taken from him, but he doesn't just move on because he's been there and he's done that. God's grace is not a one-time event, but it's a continual outpouring, constant nourishment for our souls. And this is precisely why we have a time of confession every single week in our services. That's why we read God's law today and we evaluated, have we met that standard? It's why we read an assurance of grace to remind ourselves that we will not meet that standard, but Christ has on our behalf, and he is compassionate and faithful and gracious towards us. Even as Christians, we still wrestle with our own sinfulness. We still stumble in many ways, day after day, week after week, by nature and by choice, We already have forgiveness in Christ if we've believed in him, but we have a continual need of his grace and his forgiveness as well. And we confess sin both corporately and individually. It's not a way to punish ourselves, but it's a way to experience anew his compassionate and faithful love. We should be saying to him daily, just as David does here, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. May we never forget what we are, have been saved and what we are being saved from. So, Redeemer, can we hold together these twin truths that our sin is immense, but God's love overcomes our sin with compassionate faithfulness? Will we trust him to forgive us as he says and to carry us through our distress, even when that distress comes from our own sinful hearts? If we're to follow what we see in Psalm 25, we must do this. Hopefully, as we talk of distress that comes from outside of us and from within us, hopefully this causes you to ask a really important question. Will we ever be free from all this? We need God's defense. We need his guidance. We need his forgiveness for our failings. But will our distress ever come to an end? And it's here that I want to draw our attention to a few final statements that show us what we can ultimately look forward to. The truth that in your distress, you can trust God to save you. Look with me at a few verses. Verse 15 of Psalm 25. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. 
Verse 17. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Verse 22. God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. David isn't just asking for these things, but he's believing that one day these things will happen, that one day his feet will be pulled out of the net, that one day he'll be brought out of his sufferings, that one day he and all of Israel, and for us, all of those who believe, who are part of God's church today, that be liberated from all their distresses. This is the theme that David's prayer has been leading to all along. The people of God can expect that one day they'll be delivered and brought out from all their sufferings, from all their distress. And this is God's promise to all of us. Not only will he defend us when we're surrounded and disgraced by our enemies here and now, not only will he guide us with his wisdom in the decisions we have to make, not only will he forgive our constant failings day after day, but one day he will save us from all of it. Our eternal hope will come to its completion. When I was about 10 years old, my family went on a vacation to Niagara Falls, Canada. And if any of you have been there, maybe you've seen this. I'm not sure why, but for some reason, haunted houses are probably one of the most prolific industries in Niagara Falls. You can literally find one on every corner, at least 20 years ago you could. Uh, my sister and I, uh, on this trip, brave as we thought we were, we convinced our parents to let us go to some haunted houses. So my mom and sister went to one. It was like an alien haunted house. And then my dad and I went to another. I think it had villains from, uh, from some horror movies in it. And uh, I just thought this was going to be a great experience. I still remember the guy who was running the haunted house as we walked up. And I remember him looking at my dad and saying, pointing to me and saying, is he sure he wants to go in there? Of course I was. Bad decision. So we go into this haunted house, and the first thing we walk into is this ominous hallway, and it just gets darker the further you get down the hallway, and it goes totally dark at the end. So we, we walk this out. Now, my dad's a huge dude. He's, his shoulders are probably about this wide. So I was like, okay, at least I feel good because I'm with dad. We, we turn this corner, and everything is just pitch black. And the only thing that we have to guide us through this room are these little tiny red lights on the ceiling that kind of show us which direction to keep going. So we walk, it's totally dark, I see nothing but these red lights, and first these creepy noises start happening around us, something touches my leg, and before I knew it, this horrific wolfman demon creature just busts out and, of a trap door and like screams in our faces, or maybe I was screaming in his face, or probably both, I don't know, but it was a horrible experience. And then things just keep coming at us, and I'm like, get me out of here! As you can imagine, I was in distress. I don't think my dad was at all. The whole time he kept his cool and guided me through it. Unfortunately for him, by this point, I was clinging to his back like a 90-pound leech and eventually he'd have to peel me off of himself. But uh, despite everything going on around me and the sheer terror I was feeling, I was never without hope. Why? Because I knew it was temporary. And because I knew who I was following. I knew that because of who he was and because of his care for me that my dad could defend me. I knew that he, he could figure out where to go, even if I closed my eyes and wanted to lay in the, on the ground in a fetal position or cling to his back or whatever. I knew that he knew where to go and that he'd keep us moving and he would guide me. More than all this, I knew that eventually he was going to get me out of there. I knew that I would be saved from my distress. Yes, I had him to protect me and to guide me while we were there, but ultimately I knew the greatest power that he could enact was his ability to get me home. 
Back to Psalm 25, as we see David pray, we see him cling to this hope of a full and final salvation from his distress. This is why he says several times in Psalm 25 that he waits for the Lord and he keeps his eyes on him. He patiently expects that one day his and his people's final deliverance will come. But he also knows that it will come in the Lord's timing, in the Lord's way, and not his own. So he waits. With the people of God in all generations, we wait for this deliverance. 2 Peter 3 teaches us how to wait expectantly. The Apostle Peter tells us, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In fact, that is why Christ has not yet come back, because there are more who need to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See, this is the promise to all who are in Christ. This is the promise that David ultimately looked toward. One day our feet will be pulled out of the net. We will be brought out from all of our sufferings and all of our distress. Christ will come to vanquish sin and evil and suffering, to make all wrong things right, and ultimately to bring salvation to its completion. We'll live in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness and only righteousness dwells. This is David's hope. This should be our hope, and it allows us to pray through all of our distress. And maybe as we've gone through this psalm, hopefully you've noticed that the whole thing is it's pointing us beyond the human author, David. It would so, be so easy to look at this psalm and simply say, as we've said so far, that look at how David prays, look at how David trusts, and certainly he's a great coach of our prayer. Certainly we have much that we can learn here. In God's wisdom, this psalm points far beyond the imperfect King David to the true and better David, Jesus Christ. Now consider this with me. Who perfectly trusted that God would defend him and vindicate him from his enemies? Jesus. First Peter 2. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Who perfectly depended on the Father to guide him and followed obediently in his ways? Jesus. John 5, 19. Truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. More than that, who is himself the way to the Father? It's Jesus. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in Psalm 25, when God shows sinners the way, it's ultimately Christ that he shows us. 
Who perfectly trusted the Father to forgive, even though he himself had no need of forgiveness? It's Jesus. He said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23. More than that, who himself purchased the forgiveness that you and I so desperately need but could never earn? Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And who perfectly trusted that the father would save him from death and who himself will come to destroy sin and death and suffering and sorrow? It's Jesus. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, this is Jesus, said, look, I'm making everything new. So Redeemer family, as you navigate the distresses and afflictions of your life, of this world, pray confidently following David's example, but look to Jesus, the true hope of Psalm 25, the true hero of this passage. Cry out to God to defend you from whatever and whomever afflicts you. Humbly seek his guidance to shape you in his truth and to show you his ways for whatever decisions you face. Plead forgiveness by the shed blood of Christ day after day. And look in patient hopefulness to the day where he saves you and me and all who believe from all of our distress. He will defend you. He will guide you. He will forgive you. And he will save you. Let's pray together. We thank you for this passage. Jesus, we come to you needing your help. You told us in the book of John that in this life we would have many trials, but we can take heart because you have overcome the world. God, I pray as we look to a passage like Psalm 25 that we would see the truths that it holds, that you are a God eager to defend, eager to guide, eager to forgive, and eager to save. And these are all available to us today. God, encourage us in this truth. When we face distress, may we come to you. Even as we sang earlier, might we not hold this distress on ourselves, but might we bring everything to you. Above all, we thank you that our hope is found in a God who came in the middle of our mess, came into our sin, into our suffering, into the brokenness of this world, sacrificed his life on the cross so that we could, through believing, have eternal life in him. And it's on that we place our hope today. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.